Listeners, start your engines. Detours, episode 49. Rob here. On this episode, Ryan Luis Rodriguez from One Track Mind joins us to talk about 1972's Conquest of the Planet of the Apes as we move forward through our Planet of the Apes mega series. Getting close to the halfway point, this is a really interesting one that I think uh, has a lot of bearing on the reboot trilogy, as we'll get into. As always, you can find more episodes of this show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Good Pods, and other podcatchers, as well as CrookedTable.com. Go ahead and give us a rating and review wherever you're listening to this. For now, let's listen to a little bit of the trailer and then jump into our conversation about Conquest of the Planet of the Apes. Now, the biggest, the newest, the most exciting of all the Planet of the Apes pictures. Climaxed by the spectacular Revolt of the Apes. The most awesome the most horrifying spectacle in the annals of science fiction. First pampered as pets, then abused as servants, now oppressed as slaves. Detours, where we believe no movie series travels in a straight line. Speaking of not traveling in a straight line, we've been all over the place with these Planet of the Apes movies. So as we're continuing our mega series into the fourth film in the franchise, Conquest of the Planet of the Apes from 1972, I am honored to welcome back to the show Ryan Luis Rodriguez of One Track Mind. Welcome, sir. Yes, hello. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm feeling a little... uh you know, downbeat after about humanity's future after all these movies. <laughs> I don't know how you could say that. It's such an uplifting film. <laughs> no, every single one of them, you're like, oh, this is a fun movie. The cool ape makeup, great. And then you're like, oh, the earth blew up. Yeah. Or oh, they just shot a baby. Or like, you know, <laughs> it's 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 very yeah, it's very complicated. Um, before we get into this franchise, because lots to dig into in, in conquest, as we were sort of talking about just before hitting record here. Uh, tell people about One Track Mind, because you you were doing the Coolness Chronicles for a while, and then you shifted gears, you ended that, and now you have a new venture. So tell people what they can expect from that. 
Yeah, so One Track Mind is uh, analyzing film through the prism of audio commentaries because I am such a DVD features nerd, having grown up on them, that I felt that as we're kind of switching to streaming, we're getting away from the features, and my favorite feature was always the audio commentary. So I delve into the history of, of movies and their legacy with clips from the uh, appropriate audio commentaries, and it's been... It's been uh, a wild ride so far, and I hope to keep continuing it in the future. Yeah, I feel like, you know, as physical media has sort of been contending with streaming the last decade or so, that the art of the DVD special features, and particularly the commentary, has really sort of fallen by the wayside. it's, It's sometimes hard to find physical media releases that have those on there uh, of newer movies, and I feel like even the older ones, it's just like you can buy it on streaming on Apple or whatever, but it doesn't come with all that extra stuff. And that was what got me so excited about the DVD era is that, wait, I get the movie plus the commentary, plus all the behind the scenes, plus the trailers, plus like the music videos from the soundtrack and like it's the full package. Uh, And so, yeah, I'm yeah, I'm right there with you. Like commentary is a really it's like a film school for free that most people don't even absolutely is on there. And the cool thing about commentaries, though, is that without them, I don't think podcasting would exist. I think that it's podcasting is just an updated form of the audio commentary. And it it really hurts my heart that they're going by the wayside because they're so valuable to not just like budding cinephiles, but anybody who wants to, to learn the craft, learn the trade. There's so much you can learn from that stuff. I feel like somebody in Hollywood or maybe even a studio should pick up on that and just like post those commentaries as podcast episodes, just be like the paramount archives and just every week, a different commentary from their library of stuff that you can just listen to out of context. So I think that would be a real asset. That's not really being tapped into. You are talking about an alternate universe in which I wish I lived. Yeah. I, right. Exactly. Like occasionally there's, you know, there's some websites where you can kind of listen to some here and there, uh, that they post them probably, probably not a hundred percent legally. Um, but yeah, you can like, find some on YouTube, but yeah. not in the greatest condition. Exactly. There's also like, uh, I don't want to, I don't know if I want to mention the website cause I don't want to shut them down, but I will anyway, uh, listen to a movie.com where you can listen to movies. They have audios of tracks of movies, but also commentaries for some of them on there. So I've done that a bunch, but, uh, but yeah, it's, 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 they have the resources. Why not just put it out there throw ads on it so you can put it on Spotify or, or Apple Podcasts or whatever. It just, it feels like, uh, you know, something that that's kind of just sitting there that nobody's taking advantage of, but until they do it, I shall do it myself. That's right. Yeah. You're making it happen. You're manifesting the, uh, the appreciation for the lost art of the film commentary. Uh, and teamwork makes uh, the dream work as they say. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. No, I'm a big proponent of physical media. Like, Especially nowadays, like the more streaming services there are, the harder there are, the harder it is to find things that you're looking for, ironically. So I've been like, especially the last few years with the pandemic and everything, just stockpiling like retail therapy, hitting up my local used DVD store and being like stacks of things just like, oh, I remember that movie I saw 20 years ago. That was pretty fun. Let me grab it. It's not streaming anywhere. Three dollars or whatever. And um, yeah, so people check out One Track Mind. Listen to your DVD commentaries. There's more insight there than I think a lot of people realize. But what is your 
history with Planet of the Apes. When did you come across this franchise? Was it the original five, the Burton, uh, the Burton film, the, the the more recent reboot trilogy? When was your entry point? Uh, interestingly enough, it was in elementary school, and I learned about Planet of the Apes through a movie called Spaceballs. Hell yeah, me too. Love and it. when that scene at the end happens and they crawl out of the nose of the giant uh, meter maid, or not meter maid, but uh, maid Statue of Liberty, I knew that it was a reference to something. And I guess I assumed it was Planet of the Apes, but I had never seen it. And then it wasn't until like high school that I actually sat down and watched all five of the originals uh, after having seen the uh, Tim Burton abortion that is 2001 <laughs> Planet of the Apes. Oh, we'll get there. <laughs> And I, I fell in love very quickly. I think my favorite at the time was Beneath, simply because of how batshit crazy it goes in the third act. And it's one of those things where I always appreciate weird swings. And Beneath is like one of the biggest swings in a franchise that is full of swings. It's part of why I wanted to do this franchise for this podcast is because... It, every every movie they're like one upping themselves like all right how can we make sure that no one can possibly make another one of these and then yes exactly like yeah. all right how are we gonna make another one of these the the, the box office receipts are in uh, let's figure out even though we blew up the planet now what uh oh time it's travel. one of the okay, it's what? one of the best reasons why you should never plot stories out because yeah. then you could just pull stuff out of your ass and go, yeah, that was the plan the whole time. Of course. Yeah, of course. <laughs> we meant yeah. to go time traveling. That's why we blew up the planet. Now it isn't bullshit, but whatever. It works. <laughs> and, and the thing with Escape is that they added the whole time travel element there. And so that was the only one that really ends with a cliffhanger. That ends. That's the only one that ends with, oh, there might be another one. It seems like you guys like these. So we're leaving that <laughs> open-ended. For number that, four, that's what the title of Escape should have been called. We know you guys like these. <laughs> yeah, the continuing saga of the Planet of the Apes or something. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so going into this movie, obviously we jump about. I guess it is technically twenty years. Canonically, 20 it's years. like yeah, eighteen to twenty years, something like that. And we focus on Milo, who is I guess named Caesar by Armando, and then sort of publicly claims it later on with uh, Governor Breck. So yes. I guess jumping gears here, the, the big first big change is Roddy McDowell now playing a different character. What do you what are your thoughts on his performance style? Like does he convincingly play a different ape character in that makeup? Or is he so in you know, are we so ingrained in uh his version of Cornelius that uh, that it's it, you know it's it's difficult to tell to tell the difference. No, in, in watching it, I, I put it down in my notes, watching the movie again yesterday, how good he is just as a physical performer. Like he inhabits a different kind of physicality than he does as Cornelius. And it's one of those things where if you go back and watch Beneath, which I think is the only one that he's not in, mm -hmm. he's missed. And with Conquest, he's really giving a capital P performance. Like he knows how to utilize that makeup and its limitations and still put emotion and personality into that character. And I think Caesar actually might be my favorite incarnation of the different Roddy McDowell performances. Really? Yeah. I think there's a, there's, it's not only the body language, is that these characters are, have such various, such very different histories. Cornelius yes. living in a, in a society run by apes. He's an intellectual. He's sort of, searching for truth and uh 
you know, has this curiosity about the world around him. But Caesar is living in a world in which apes are treated as, you know, first sort of pets, then service animals, then essentially slaves. It's sort of that, that, that we see played out the, the future or the, I guess, or the past. It's starting to get a little confusing. It's both. It's a future (laughs) past. Future slash past of, um, that's that Cornelius mentions in the previous movie about the virus that killed the t- the dogs and cats and how apes were essentially sort of taking the their place initially and then how that got sort of twisted and perverted and he's living in a world where his kind is oppressed uh and and where the only real shelter he's had has been uh Ricardo Montalban's Armando who again like Roddy McDowell brings so much to these films. I mean, he's only in escape for like the last 20, 30 minutes or something. Uh, and here, and he's, he's only, only in this one for like 20. <laughs> yeah. Like the he jumps out minutes. a window. I know it's like, it's crazy. Uh, and he's so I, good. Oh my God. He he's so good, good in brings, this movie. He brings so much heart to that character and you need yeah. to, you need to feel his, his love for Caesar, his devotion to Caesar and his willingness to kill himself before he will turn Caesar in. And I think Ricardo Montalban was such a gifted actor uh, that he really sells that, that conflict and that like, you know, that he would be willing to essentially side with, you know, I guess it's really him siding with Caesar. It's the thing about all of this, this conflict that, that these movies and the, the, the reboot films, Dawn specifically, that I think what they do so well is that they personalize the conflict. It's like you think in your head, like, well, how could a, how could humanity, how could people turn against their own kind, their own species? And it's like, well, no, he didn't. Armando's not turning against people. He's devoted to this one ape that he cares for. Everything is personalized. Everything is, um, it, it's not, it's not done it's in about a general protection. sense. Yeah, it's about protection. It comes from a place of love and devotion. And I think in both cases, you sort of see that uh, and how, how you know, the, the, the good men in these scenarios. And again, I guess we're sort of talking about conquest and rise as sort of mirror images of each other. In both of those, you have the James Franco character there and you have the Ricardo Montalban character here being Caesar's window into the, the goodness of humanity. And, yeah, and the, I love the that. benevolent caretaker. Yeah, exactly. That there aren't they are not all heartless. They are not all oppressive. Even though that's essentially the system that the apes live in, uh there's a there's a little more nuance to it than that. And I love the fact that there are two human characters in this movie that are sympathetic, only two, and they're both people of color. Mm-hmm. They're yeah, both like that gives you a I mean, it shows you that, you know, the ape allegory has always been like it's the civil rights movement and and all this stuff. And nothing hammers that home better than having a black man be the most sympathetic character in a movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And he, he you know, they I, I, I think this is the like gradually the if you can call it subtext of the original film, it's gradually broken down to will you literally get to the point in this movie where McDonald is like, hey, you know, my my people were were treated, I'm descended from slaves. Like, I understand this, this, I, you know, we can, I can relate to where you're coming from, but it's also like, don't necessarily, you know, he pleads with, with Caesar towards the end not to 
completely, you know, uh, act out on humanity, not to completely strike back with violence and hatred. And I think that that's, that's such a, a powerful moment because the allegory for these movies becomes, goes from subtext to text. And I yes. think it, it's the, it's the trick that these movies keep playing on you is that it's this big kind of sci-fi concept, but it's really about, <clears throat> about as relevant and pertinent to real life issues as you can possibly imagine. And I think this movie highlights that more than even the previous three. Yeah. It, it, in, uh, like the, the social culture around them enhances them in ways that I don't think that the writers and directors, even at the time could have predicted that that's how it would turn out. The fact that now we have these, these modern movies that are still dealing in very similar ideas and very similar themes but now it's we have enough removed from it that we can look at it in a different way. But if you look back at these movies, they're remarkably progressive and forward thinking, which is amazing to see, you know, old science fiction actually holding up better than modern science fiction, because, yeah. you know, there's so much about the the past that is outdated and no longer useful. But these movies remain kind of evergreen because they are useful. And this is also like apparently the first one not to feature any characters from the from the you know created by Pierre Boulet or who yeah. were in the original movie. This is also a franchise that in a time where <clears throat> in a time where an ongoing story like this when franchise filmmaking wasn't the norm where it was sort of a, it wasn't just assumed that oh this is going to kick off a cinematic universe, right? Oh, we're gonna make like twenty of these things. This is this is yeah, the era where name the MCU on Planet of the Apes. Thanks a lot, Planet of the Apes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, this is a, this is an era in which like the only real huge ongoing franchise, I guess, is James Bond. Uh, yeah, and that's about it. Like you know, they they the the filmmakers here, and and we should mention this is directed by Jay Lee Thompson, who was supposed to do the original film. Uh, and then was unable to, and then it kind of came back, did this one and battle, which people will hear, hear me talk about next episode. Oh boy. Oh boy. <laughs> I haven't rewatched it yet as of this recording. Uh, not looking forward to it. The one, I will wait until after watching. you've recorded, then watch it. <laughs> yeah. Right. We're like, oh, I got nothing to say. Let the guests just go off and not have to have to weigh in on it too much. Um, but yeah, the, he, they were dealing with consistently lower budgets too. So they're, constantly asked to sort of progress the story but with less money to do so and so you know i think you find creative solutions for that by having escape and this one set in what as what is at the time modern day by having especially an escape by having fewer ape characters here it's how do you think how do, how do you think thompson balances the scope of the story because this at a pretty epic in scope uh event for the franchise and it packs that, a lot into 87 yeah. minutes like there's a lot here absolutely how does how do you how well do you think he pulls that off given the fact that you know he had like i think 1.7 million dollars to make this which is not even not even a big budget at the time really and you have so many ape characters uh in, in rioting and revolting and organizing and kind of turning the tables on humanity He's so, he does such a good job. And the, the amazing thing about the movie is that if you sat down and told people, this is the second cheapest Planet of the Apes movie, I don't yeah. think most people would believe you. 
And yeah. part of that is utilizing actual architecture that exists in Los Angeles to play a dystopia. There's no set dressing. There's no embellishing it with matte paintings. This is environments that actually exist. And knowing how to, how to penny pinch and how to cut corners without compromising the material, I think, is his, his greatest uh, success. And that is evident in every single frame of this movie. You cannot tell that it's so low budget. I think the only, maybe the only tell is that some of the masks on some of the, you know, background gorillas and yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. That's but that, true. I mean, that, that's kind of an ongoing thing through all the movies, really. That's right. That's one of those things that when you watch these movies, I, I feel like a lot of people maybe dismiss these original five or at least the sequels because they're like, ah, the makeup is like whatever. And, you know, it's like those movies don't have any lasting imprint. And I'm like, I think rewatching it specifically for these episodes, I, I'm realizing like, man, like every one of these is good. Like every one of these has such strong points of view and such, such something to say. And and they balance the the big sci-fi ideas with, you know, with fun and and, and endearing moments or character driven emotional moments. And it, it feels like, you know, these movies are really you know, escape and conquest, I'd say, because I have I have sort of mixed feelings on Beneath. I think part of it is the lack of Cornelius and Zero throughout that film. I think part of it is the uh, the bringing in Brent as kind of Taylor Light. I think that that kind of hampers that movie. <laughs> that was his bit. name in the original script was Taylor Light. <laughs> because, yeah, well, I mean, he they literally cast somebody who looks like Charlton Heston. It's like, why did not just go completely different with it? Um, Uber Taylor. Yeah, exactly. Uh, a, a less cynical Taylor, I think. That movie needed somebody who had like a, a modicum of optimism because Taylor is just such a downer in and of himself. Uh, uh, I think these, especially the Escape and Conquest, I think are such a strong, t together, it's such a strong arc for this franchise. And having, you know, one of, having probably one of the more, more interesting or more watchable human villains, like where do you think Governor Breck fits in with the pantheon of Planet of the Apes villains. Uh, you know, I guess I guess it's Zaius in the first one, essentially. And then beneath is beneath is the mutants. And then Escape is um, Hasling. And then I don't even remember for battle. So uh, where's Governor Brexit with those guys? I think that he is he's close enough to Zaius to almost get there. But I think that you always mm. have to give the edge to the original. But yeah. The amazing thing that I learned about this actor who plays the villain is that he translated his lines into German to rehearse because he wanted to get that whole Third Reich attitude towards it. And even if you don't know that little piece of trivia, you can tell that this guy is dedicated to his oh, to yeah. his villain and he's not mustache twirly, but he's an obvious villain with capital O, capital V. He's very, it's clear that he's the antagonist, but at the same time, you think that he thinks he's doing the right thing, which Absolutely. I think is the key to a good villain. I think you could say that about Hasseline a bit too in the previous yeah. film, where he's like, I'm the only one that believes the time travel thing. I'm the only one that, that I have to, it's up to me to, to save humanity. Like I'm the hero of my own story, right? That's the whole thing with, with any good villain. And uh, there are a lot of, torture scenes in this movie there's that now the armando has that interrogation scene and then caesar's auctioned off and then as we said earlier armando kills himself rather than submit to the authenticator machine uh and then the, the whole scene they, they hook up caesar to you know uh to torture to like a electrocution 
uh, like yeah, a torture it's machine. Upsetting. Try and get him it to talk. It's, it's upsetting. Yeah, these movies go real. Like they're not afraid to go dark. And I think it's. Oh, it's this goes really, hard. This goes this really is, hard. This might be the darkest of them. Yeah, I would say. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah, because it's not like in Escape. Escape has some of that like. Oh, look, Cornelius in a suit. And look, you know, Zira's a, a feminist icon and things like that. Like, it's it has a lighter tone throughout. And then the ending is like kind of a gut punch. But this movie is pretty much throughout is kind of intense. Even the, op- the original opening for this movie was going to be like, um, I think they were going to have, they were going to find like a, uh, a the body of, of an ape who was like beaten and it was really, it was really more graphic and more, um, more apparent the, the way that they were treating these characters, uh, the, the ape characters throughout this movie. And, and I think it was just deemed too violent for this film. And this is the first one of the original five that was not rated G and in part because of how, how intense and how dark the story goes. And And there's an unrated version of this that I watched, which is, uh, there's a lot of blood in it. I will say I was surprised in rewatching it. I remembered it being violent and upsetting, but Mm -hmm. I was not prepared for how many shots there were of guns going off and clear, like blood coming out of eyes and just piles of dead bodies strewn with gore. Like it's, it's clearly, it's not a kid's movie. And I appreciate that. The fact that they acknowledge that you know, the main reason that this franchise uh, succeeded was because it connected with children. And so they sold merchandise and they made it this whole uh, uh, phenomenon. But with this one, they're saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. The other movies are for kids. This time we're going to sit down and we're going to tell you something about society and the world that we live in. And it's not going to sugarcoat anything. And it's going to be as brutal as possible. And the fact that they had the chutzpah to do that and do it successfully I think needs to be taken into account. Yeah. The revolution isn't pretty and it shouldn't be like, I think there's, you know, they, they could have done a, a like much toned down version of this. And I guess the theatrical version was a little more toned down. I think, cause I have the um, 50th anniversary, like box set that I got. Yeah. That's what I have ago. too. Yeah. Cause I was planning on doing this on this podcast a while ago and it just kept getting pushed cause it's so many movies uh, but then I was finally like, okay, no, I need to, I need to like crack that open and actually go through these films again. So I think I watched the uh, the extended cut without even really realizing it. But yeah, there is it. It's it is kind of jarring to see a movie like this that is, I guess, rated PG. And uh, it's even when it's, I would argue that none of these movies are really for kids because the first movie there's the lobotomizing human beings and the whole thing is sort of upsetting. And I have a six year old and. My wife and Heston's like, butt. Yeah, you know, Heston's butt. R rating. Oh it's yeah. Give me hey. some more of that. Hello. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, you know, I would I I tell my wife, like, I don't really think any of these are for our daughter. Like, these movies are they're thematically not appropriate for children. But yeah, this one goes even harder with it. Like I was saying, the subtext becomes text. The, the Yeah, I think the only one that you can show kids is escape. Right. Because as Dana Gould famously said, it's uh, love American style, but with apes. Yeah. So it's until it's, the end it, where they got gunned down. And yeah, yeah, yeah. But just, you know, don't show the kid that part, but show them the off, rest right, of the movie and then yeah. tell them what do you think happens and then let them make up their own imaginary story. 
And then shatter their innocence if minutes later. If uh, <laughs> <laughs> Then say, psych, and then play, press play. Ha-ha. And show them the you rest of it. <laughs> I got you, humanity, dumb kid. Humanity, humanity sucks. Now you know. The Apes movies taught you young. Yeah. No, it's... Uh, it's it, 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 I'm glad that they they weren't afraid to sort of lean into what this, how messy this transition from human rule to ape rule would be. And I think it would not be a cut and dried, right. You know, line in the sand. It's going to, there's going to be compromises on both sides. There's going to be bad. People will do good things. Good people will do bad things. It's, it's going to, yeah, as you said, it's going to be messy. It's also sort of the self-fulfilling prophecy of humanity in that if, the the humanity hadn't reacted the way they reacted to Cornelius and Zira to the revelation that, Hey, we're going to take over your planet one day, by the way. Uh, and we're pregnant with another little ape baby. That's going to start. We're going to start basically now, even though, uh, un- un- unintentionally we're kind of kickstarting the revolution in the, in, you know, 1973 by pulling up on that same spaceship that Taylor left with a few years earlier. Uh, Having humanity react the way that they reacted to killing Cornelius and Zira to, in this movie, treating apes the way they're treating apes shapes Caesar's perspective and leads him to cause an uprising, to, to you know, turn the tables on them. And I think it's, it's one of those things that it's like it, 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 the apes took over, but only because the humans sort of struck first. And I think it's, it's their reaction that led to this turn of events. And I think that's, yeah, it's a, it's a chicken or the egg scenario. Yeah. Yeah. It leads to the question of if we had treated them better and had we integrated them into society, into society, would this have happened? And the answer is maybe like, we don't know. We really don't know. All we know is that we made the wrong decision. And we have history books and we know how we treat others, other groups that try to come into our, society and this is yeah this it, is it's hard it. to know if if we if we made the right decision would we just be prolonging the inevitable and would somebody else come back in time and there's this whole causality loop that it it makes my head hurt to even think about it but <laughs> it's, it's very it's always it, the fundamental question in these movies is could we yeah. have done better right it's also very like terminator in, in this in this yeah set, especially with absolutely escape. Where it's like, well, did Cornelius and Zira always go back? Were they always the ones that that led to the Planet of the Apes, or did something change along the way? There's also a little bit of, uh, there's also a little bit of light retconning throughout the, this franchise with how much the apes knew about their history and their ties to humans. Because in the first one, Zeus is is keeping that a secret, but then in Escape, Cornelius is like, oh, you know, this is how it started. It was a virus, and then, you know, apes were treated like this, and then eventually we, you know, it was. He mentions Aldo in there, and then Aldo sort of like swept under the rug, and Caesar kind of takes over, uh, takes the the prominent role in ape history. Uh, I think all of that, you know, I, you could argue, I guess, that some of that is the timeline was skewed, et cetera, et cetera, or you could just be like, or the movies were just trying to figure it out as they went along. I think both answers are probably true. Um, yeah. What is your I- take on that? On the the way that the ape history plays out. Well, I think it's adorable that you're using the word lightly, because I would say that this is heavily retconned in every single new movie. And that's kind of what I appreciate about it is that now that we're we're doing this whole uh, four pronged franchise IP saturation, you know, environment. Now, everything doesn't matter unless you have three movies planned out and a television series and a tie in comic book. 
And what I'd like is that this series is essentially a studio saying, oh, people saw that. I guess we'll pony up the cash to make another one. What do you, what ideas do you have? Just throw shit out and see what sticks to the wall. And eventually best idea wins. And uh, I'd say that there's the fact that you could actually line these movies up and watch them without too many jarring uh, lapses in continuity really speaks to how potent the franchise is and how potent the concept is, that it's very malleable. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think uh, it's... It is. It, I mean, I guess I was being a little. I was a little underselling with the lightly, but uh, it, <laughs> you think it, it's an it's an evolution of of uh, there you go of how they want it there. Yeah, there you go. That's the prop- Hey, that's a good <laughs> word there. I like there that evolution. It's, it's the evolution of apes and humans and our our interconnected history together. Uh, I did like in this one that the apes use uh, nets system to the humans, which felt like a night, very clear callback to the original film. So I, I like and I so quaint. that. I love yeah. it's so cute. Yeah. Uh, we're gonna we're um, gonna disrupt all these people with rifles and riot gear. Oh, with a net. Yeah, whatever. I love it. Uh, monkeys. Net. Monkeys, the things they think of. Oh, what do <laughs> they do next? They also have sort of color-coded uh jumpsuits on in this movie. I don't think the colors quite add up. But again, somebody just along the way was like, hey, you know, we like we prefer orange instead of yellow or whatever the, the case may be. Uh, I think that that's another like sort of evolving part of the ape society that we kind of see here. Uh, we mentioned about how violent this movie is. Apparently, according to according to IMDb, whatever you want to believe about that, but according to them, there there's an on screen body count of like 59, which is insane. That's like a John Wick level kind of uh, <laughs> kind of number. So I I didn't really realize that was that much on screen, uh, and I loved the uh, the monologue we get from Breck at uh, towards the end of the film about you know when we when we hate you we're hating the dark side of ourselves I think that reveals so much about what you were what we were saying about him like the whole Third Reich angle of that character the uh, the, the way that that people otherize other groups of people or in this case apes and I how key is Caesar's sort of closing. Uh, monologue because that was apparently a late addition that uh, earlier uh, the original ending was gonna have the apes apparently beating Breck to death and uh, you know they added in Lisa yelling no Lisa who I think is is she's played by Natalie Trundy isn't she yeah, yeah I think Natalie so. Trundy who is like the the first and only character to play a mutant and then a human and then an ape uh, because she was married to one of the producers at the time. Which or yeah, she's just versatile. I don't think you need too. to bring up that part. I, mean, I think it helps. It helps that she helps get her foot in the door. I do think she is, uh, you know, solid in these three movies. Yeah, she's fine. Remember, yeah. She's okay. She's all right. She's, she's not bad. She doesn't break the movie. Like no, it's like yeah. not one of those nepo things where you're like, oh god, just we know how she got in this movie. She doesn't belong here. Like she's totally fine. She does. She does She's just probably half mutant. That's how she got the job. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Terrible She's part ape. Oh, cut. Um, uh, so yeah, so we get her. So Lisa yells no. And then we get the the footage of like Caesar's speech where there's clearly dialogue dubbed in where he says, and now we will put away our hatred. And it ends with that very pointed, you know, tonight we've seen the birth of the planet of the apes. 
uh, wink, wink, which I love. I love that. Again, I think further further uh, solidifying the fact that maybe this should have been the end of this original run of the franchise. How key is that moment that Caesar shows mercy? Uh, because he could have easily gone in the other direction. And I think, you know, he would have been justified in doing so. I think it's, yeah, thoughts on on that that finale that Caesar just does stop the violence at a certain point. It's incredibly powerful. It's one yeah. of those kind of like galvanizing moments where you don't realize that you have a an inkling of how this is going to turn out because it's all the slow march to doom. And the fact that he does kind of pull it out at the last minute and says, and has a, has a, a change of heart in a way that is still, uh, still appropriate to the character. It doesn't betray anything, but I think that it, it remarkably doesn't undercut the brutality that you've just seen. Cause that's the thing you could easily, in doing a, a move like that, you could be cheapening everything that came before. But I think that the fact that it still holds up with that with that little left turn, I think, really speaks to how good the material is. Mm-hmm. And knowing what we know about that character, the fact that he was raised by uh, Armando, and the warmth that Ricardo Montalban brings to that performance in, in both films, it, it does make sense where he would he would eventually hesitate and realize, well, okay, like we don't want to become the thing. No, it's it's the whole uh, revenge of the Sith. <laughs> we don't want to become the yeah. thing we were, we were, we were, you know, supposed to destroy, kind of thing. And uh, yeah, he so was I, taught I, grace. That's yeah, the exactly. key thing is that he has grace in him. Right. Yeah, and because he's been persecuted and then risen up from that, he knows both sides of that position in a way that Breck doesn't. Breck is the you know the the guy in charge, and so he doesn't necessarily have that that same capacity. And I think it's part of it's part of what keeps audiences kind of on the side of the apes for a lot of these movies. Uh, I think even more so later on when Andy Serkis takes over uh, as as Caesar as that version of Caesar, I guess I should say, uh, is that he is he he's there's a certain for lack of a better term, humanity in Caesar that I think you see in that moment. And I think it, it, it would have ended on a, on a down note, but it would have made the, it, had he had, they gone ahead and killed Breck, but it would have, it would have played like a horror movie instead of a, a more complicated sci-fi thriller. And I think yeah. It, it's, yeah, it's it thorny. changes the tone of the movie. It's very yeah. thorny. Absolutely. Um, is there, is there anything else about, Conquest of the Planet of the Apes that we haven't mentioned that you wanted to make sure we talked about before we move into the legacy of the franchise and uh, and the ranking and all of that. You know, I think we actually covered basically everything. I'm looking at my it's, notes here and we we covered a lot of ground. It's very straightforward. I mean, it's like it's it, there's it's not that the not that the movie itself is not morally complex, but the story that it's telling is remarkably focused and uh, you know, straightforward and and it's it's I love how character-driven some of these sequels in the film are. I think the first one is a lot more plot-driven and concept-driven, and then as the sequels go on, you're really in the you're really spending time with Cornelius and, and Zero, with Caesar, and you're really kind of getting in their heads. Uh, I do think had this been the end of the franchise, like that, it would have uh, sort of inoculated this as an IP from the development hell that it spends the next 
you know, 20, 30, however many years in from between 1973 and 2011, really, uh, if we're not going to yeah, count. Or 2001, but, you know, let's not, yeah, let's not go yeah, there. I mean, it depends. But, yeah, it depends how, how well you want to, if you want to consider a 2001 film a win for the franchise or not. I mean, it's it's a little, it depends what your metric is, I guess. Yeah, uh, I think if we ended with this, anytime anybody wanted to resurrect the franchise, they go, really? Did you see the last one? Do you really want to yeah. remind anybody of this stuff? It's like, well, battle since you're going out and kind of a, eh, that's yeah. okay. Then you can recharge that IP and do whatever you want with it. But I honestly think that if if this was the last original film, it, it's, it can be abrasive and uh, a little uh, uncompromising, I think, to the target audience of this franchise that I think that it would have scared people off from really diving deep and going back to the well. Yeah, no, that's true. I feel like it's a better conclusion for the story. Again, in oh, knowing how, how we both feel about battle, I think it, it, you know the legacy of the franchise might have been a little stronger, but we're um but yeah, so what is the legacy, speaking of, what is the legacy of this franchise in your mind? Uh I mean it's it's very much even though it's about a unique visual conceit it's ideas. It's pushing forward uh, some concepts that we're still wrestling with to this day. And I think the fact that by couching it in genre and saying, but this is a this is a future society, this can't be us, but letting the subtext speak for itself, I think that uh, it it a lot of sci-fi that follows owes a lot to this. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I agree. It is still powerful and still manages to connect audiences to this day. And I think the fact that when you have a basic idea that's just monkey planet, what if it's a planet except they have monkeys? And then right. you put in all this stuff about civil rights, it 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 uh, it takes a lot of the sting off because these are ultimately kind of cynical movies, but not right. in a negative way. They're cynical in a way that is appropriate and uh, justified. But I think that ultimately what these movies come down to are the ideas that they propagate and the uh, the lessons that they actually have to teach us even today. Right. They're meant to be cautionary tales as well yes. as, you know, big, broad entertainment. Planet of the Apes was a title that really goes well on a poster, but also, you know, come for the the. The, the 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 crazy sci-fi stay for the the ideas and what you know how it'll intellectually stimulate you in the same time. Absolutely. Uh, what what is your ranking of these nine if you have one? Okay, so one is the original, obviously. Yeah. Two is war. Uh three would be dawn. Four would be conquest. Then Five would be uh, Beneath. Six would be Rise. Seven would be Escape. Eight would be Battle. Nine would be Tim Burton. <laughs> Poor Tim Burton. <laughs> the he knows what he did. He <laughs> knows what he did. No, I think there, there's, there are pretty clear tears in this franchise that I'm hearing from from uh, guests sort of recurring again and again that like the original Dawn War and then either Escape or Conquest, like they're all kind of grouped towards the top and then the middle ones are just sort of there and then, yeah, and then it's always like Battle and uh, and Tim Burton at the bottom. Very uh, appropriate. Pro- you have very smart guests. I will say that. Yeah. Me, me notwithstanding, you have very smart guests. 
So I, I, I'm curious though, you had Rye kind of on the lower-ish side. What is your, just real quick, what is your, what is your, uh, why is Rye's kind of at where, it, sitting where it lies? I think that it's just, in the amount of table setting that it has to do, I think it, mm-hmm. it kind of makes it a little less propulsive than I would like. I mean, I still, I have such high esteem for this franchise that yeah. even at the lower end, that's still great to me. Like, that's still a three and a half star movie. But yeah, uh, yeah it's, I mean, with this, it's it's kind of like, it's like, you know, charting the Muppets. Like, I love all of them. Even the ones mm-hmm. that aren't so good, I still love them. I yeah. still have some esteem for them. Well, the the thing is that Rise has to claw its way out of making people forget the 2001 movie. Yes, that's a difficult battle. Yeah. Kind of reinvigorating. Like, hey, remember what was great about this movie from those <laughs> the first one? And and if you saw the you know uh, Beneath and Escape and Conquest, remember how how strong an idea this was and how rich it. It is, and how like uh, ripe for further exploration this I, this concept and this pro- franchise is. It's let's, a heavy cross to back. bear. Yeah, it's yeah, a heavy yeah. cross to bear, and it takes most of the runtime for that, and then it ends, and you're like, oh, cool, that was. I guess right. I care about. See this you back here again. in three years, maybe. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, and then when they came back, they were like, oh, hit the ground running, like right from the first frame. Like I think. Dawn yeah. is is it already an improvement? Uh, Dawn gets but, the benefit of being the wrath of Khan of the series, where absolutely. all the table setting is out of the way, and you're just like, I just want to see monkeys fight humans. Just yep. come on, just give me that, and that's exactly Apes what it gives on you. Horses, Apes yes, on horses with guns. Hell One yeah! Of the most iconic images from this franchise. Um, Ryan, this has been a blast. I, I'm impressed that we were able to cover this movie in record time. But uh, tell people where they can find you on social media. Sure. So I'm uh, on Twitter at one track mind pod and on Instagram at one. That is the numeral one track mind podcast because I did not get to choose. So I'm stuck with the damn numeral one. It's uh, it's it's probably confusing a lot of people, but you can thank Instagram for that and not <laughs> me. Awesome. Yeah, this was a blast, my friend. I'm glad we were able to get you on this franchise. Like I, you know, you just randomly, I, I guess, were you watching this movie for a specific purpose or you're just like hanging out with Conquest? You posted about it on Instagram and I was like, um, I'm talking about those at some point soon. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it was just on? completely like, random. Hey. I was just like, yeah. I think I'm in the mood for Conquest. And I just put there it on. It's like this movie fucking rocks. I love Sometimes this movie. Sometimes you just need to see apes beat the shit out of humans. And this is yes. for you. We need more <laughs> of that. We don't need no battle. We need Conquest part two. <laughs> there you go. Big thanks to Ryan Luis Rodriguez from One Track Mind for coming on to discuss 1972's Conquest of the Planet of the Apes. Really strong finale for this these this series of films thus far, these four original films from the Planet of the Apes franchise. Uh, it will be interesting to see what Battle does. We'll get to that. If those of you who know this franchise know why I'm looking around a little nervously at this point. Uh, but I want to know, what did you think about conquest of the planet of the apes is this one that you've even seen i have a feeling a lot of people are learning about these movies the sequels to the original film for the first time via this episode uh, or this set of episodes rather so let me know if you what your history is with these sequels because they are uh non-existent i think for a lot of modern audiences so find me on twitter at crooked table same handle on instagram via email at robert at crookedtable.com. For now, that's a wrap on another Crooked Table production. We'll be back next episode with Battle for the Planet of the Apes. And until then, keep
Catch you at the next stop, everyone. This has been a production of CrookedTable.com. All rights reserved. Z-R-O-O-K-E-D. <laughs> <laughs>